question. Does the church replace the nation of Israel, or will Israel eventually be saved and restored with a unique identity and role? That's the discussion we'll have coming up. You're listening to The Land and the Book, and we're glad you are. We are Dr. Charlie Dyer, the host of our program. Hi, Charlie. Hey, John. Great being with you again. And I'm John Geiger. Did I mention that today we'll also have a great time answering an impressive stack of listener questions? Yeah. Speaking of questions, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You will also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, let's take a look at current events from the Middle East, beginning with this story as the start date draws near for Israel to bring its newest natural gas field online in the Mediterranean. Hezbollah is still threatening to disrupt the process if their demands aren't met. Could Israel and Hezbollah come to blows over this issue? You know, John, I'm not sure if either side wants war, but it's a very real possibility. And Iran might be the one who will make the ultimate decision. In one sense, Iran would like Hezbollah to try to hit Israel's gas platforms for two reasons. First, it would be their way of paying Israel back for attacks Israel has made on Iranian interests in Syria. And second, it could help tie Israel down and keep them from launching a possible attack against Iran's nuclear facilities. But on the other side of the equation, any attack before the nuclear agreement is signed could scuttle the agreement, Hmm. and Iran is desperate to have the economic sanctions on them lifted. Uh, That might be why Iran has suddenly become very anxious to have the U.S. agree to the New Deal. Lebanon is trying to put pressure on Hezbollah to allow the negotiations on a maritime deal with Israel to continue and to conclude. Uh, They want an agreement because it will give them access to part of the natural gas field under the Mediterranean, and they desperately need the income. Unfortunately, Hezbollah's loyalty is to Iran, not Lebanon. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, issued his own blunt warning to Hezbollah. He said, Israel's ready to reach a deal with Lebanon, but that it's also prepared to defend itself. And he said an attack by Hezbollah could trigger a reaction that would involve days of fighting and a military campaign. Israel and Lebanon are reportedly close to reaching an agreement on settling their maritime dispute. However, it's possible that Israeli law will require the government to hold a national referendum before the agreement becomes law. So the question that needs to be answered are these. First of all, whether Iran even wants Hezbollah to attack or not. And if they do, would it be more of a symbolic action, like launching of drones similar to the attack stopped by Israel several weeks ago? Or will it be an all-out assault to try to destroy Israel's natural gas platforms? And finally, what will Israel do in response? If it's a symbolic attack, will Israel simply let it go? Or will they look for a symbolic way to respond without beginning an all-out conflict? Now, I don't think we have the answers right now, but with the new platform set to come online, we should have them sometime in the very near future. But Charlie, is it possible, though, that the defense of these platforms could sort of tie up a significant part of Israel's defense forces uh, indefinitely? Well, and that's the concern that Israel has, because uh, they want to have a credible threat against Iran, 
And if uh, so much of their uh, air force and uh, military are tied up attacking Hezbollah, uh, that degrades from their ability to launch that attack against Iran. So uh, that's why it's really an issue of what does Iran want and what Israel wants long term Mm. that's going to determine Israel's response. The Hashemite Kingdom of Palestine. Several months ago, Saudi Arabia floated the idea as a possible solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What would such a proposal look like, and is it even feasible? Yeah, this is a fascinating story that has generally flown under the radar. Uh, the so-called Saudi plan was released back in early June, but has received very little public attention. Now, here's the basics. Uh, the plan eliminates earlier Saudi proposals and apparently also eliminates the so-called two-state solution that the West has proposed that would form a separate state of Palestine. Instead, uh, the plan is a new take on an old idea. The two states to be recognized would be the state of Israel and a Jordanian state that would include the Gaza Strip and part of the West Bank. In essence, Jordan would again control much, though not all, of the land in the West Bank that it had annexed back in 1948. The Palestinians would become citizens of the state of Jordan, which would be renamed the Hashemite Kingdom of Palestine. Now, is the plan feasible? Well, that's the question, and it comes down to two issues. First, what specific land would be included in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan? Would it include some of the land west of the Jordan River? Well, yes, but the final boundaries would need to be determined. How much of the West Bank would remain in Israel's hands and become part of the state of Israel, and how much would be enfolded into Jordan? And then the second question, would the Palestinians be willing to forgo their own country Mm -hmm. and instead become part of the country of Jordan? Right now, it's hard to imagine those in leadership being willing to give up the perks of power And it's also hard to see groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad suddenly be willing to accept the existence of Israel. Now, the one thing the plan has going for it is the fact that it's being presented by a Muslim country rather than by the West. And that country is apparently willing to put hundreds of billions of dollars into making it succeed. But whether it will succeed or or simply die a quiet death like so many other proposals, well, only time will tell. Charlie, the reading I've done into this uh, makes me question whether they would be willing to even, you know, move from page one to page two based on the fact that Jerusalem isn't a part of all this. Absolutely. That's the key. And as we said before, uh, no matter what agreement's made, Jerusalem's the heart of it and the Temple Mount's the heart of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just hard to imagine the Palestinians being willing to give up claims to Jerusalem. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a Middle East scholar. With just two weeks to go until the various political parties in Israel have to file their slate of candidates, what are the latest moves being made to try to gain an advantage on Election Day? The goal at this stage is for each party to present as formidable a list of candidates as possible and to forge pre-election alliances with potential coalition partners. And the parties have been very busy doing just that. Uh, Several Knesset members resigned their seats from the Knesset to allow them to form new parties or to join other parties. The biggest loser in many of those defections was the Yamina party of former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, which is now headed by Ayelet Shaked. Uh, The party is a shadow of its former self, and most pundits are predicting it'll fail to gain the minimum number of votes to even make it into the next Knesset. Wow. To help counteract that threat, Shaked recruited the former leader of the religious kibbutz movement, who's a son of one of the founders of the settlement movement. Now, it's unclear if this will help, But her goal is to try and capture enough votes to carve into the 12 potential right-wing seats that they estimate are now up for grabs. Another of the right-wing parties is looking at offering Jonathan Pollard, 
the former U.S. intelligence analyst who spent 28 years in federal prison for spying for Israel, well, they're going to offer him a spot on their ticket. And the center-right National Unity Party of Gantz and Sa'ar announced the addition of a second Knesset member from the Amina Party, uh, Shirley Pinto, who's a longtime advocate for those with disability-related issues. Uh, one other election item is also worthy of note. Israel is concerned about cyber threats and foreign intervention in its upcoming election, with their main focus of concern being Russia and the Palestinian Authority. Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, has already warned the Palestinian Authority to stay out of the election. Apparently, after a report surfaced suggesting an official had urged the Arab Joint List and Ra'am parties to join forces to keep Netanyahu out of power. Now, with all these moves, it's amazing. There's still two months till this election, and the campaign is definitely heating up. Well, scientists in Israel have developed advanced nanosensor technology that will be able to accurately monitor a patient's respiratory condition. What makes this latest innovation from Amazing Israel so special? Well, technology currently exists, and in fact, it's widely used to monitor an individual's breathing and oxygen levels. But when it comes to individuals with COPD, it's difficult to monitor patients at home in a way that provides early identification of changes in their condition. And that's where nano Vation hyphen GS comes in. Uh, this technology enables the early detection of worsening symptoms and helps reduce prolonged hospitalizations by providing appropriate early treatment. Uh, the system they've developed is simple to use at home without any need for professional assistance. It operates in a non-invasive way to measure breathing and discover problems using the company's exclusive biomarkers. The system only takes a few minutes to use at home. The patient simply puts on the sensor and breathes. It does all the work and provides specific respiratory parameters. The patient can't get an incorrect measurement because all they need to do is breathe naturally. It's undergone successful clinical trials in Israel and Europe, and they plan to obtain FDA approval at a later date. A simple at-home device that will allow those with COPD to check for subtle changes in their respiratory condition so the healthcare professionals can provide proactive measures to resolve any problems before they become serious. Now, that's the type of quality care that we've come to expect from the doctors and scientists in Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie. If it's been a while since you've visited our website, why not give it a look? We're at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. You'll find information about every program, every guest, and a whole lot more. Coming up, does the church replace Israel here on The Land and the Book? Question, does the church replace the nation of Israel? Some people think so. Or will Israel eventually be saved and restored with a unique identity and role? It's a very important conversation, one we're about to launch right now. This is segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think creatively with me about ways that you and I can love our Jewish friends and neighbors. So you know how you came to Jesus. You've got a testimony. That's what we call that. How do you share that with a Jewish friend and do so respectfully and yet boldly? Greg Savitt is with Rock of Israel. What do you think, Greg? You just need to be straight up, John, and just share it. Just what God did for you, how you come to faith, what has God done to your heart, and um, just be honest with them. I just want to share with you one time, I was like 24 years old, yeah, and this man came up to me 
And he said, I have Jesus Christ in my heart. And I thought, that's Meshuggah. That's crazy. But later on that night, I was like, how amazing would it be if God lived in me? Hmm. So there was a guy that shared his testimony, probably didn't even know how much it impacted me, but just the idea that God wasn't a million miles away, that he could actually live in my heart. So the idea was totally foreign. His language was sort of weird, but God still used that as a seed. Exactly. That's why, you know, I wouldn't worry too much what you have to say or how you're going to say it. I wouldn't go back and say, well, what did Greg Savitt say in this interview? Just share it. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. And even if it kind of sounds like maybe it's not really the best way to share, you never know. I've had visits sometimes, John, where I have witnessed somebody for an hour and it was like he was talking past me. It was like nobody was listening. He wasn't listening. And like, you know, five years later, he wrote me a letter that he's a believer in Jesus. Amazing. So just share. I mean, don't worry about it. Just go out there and share the gospel. Just do it. As Nike would say, just do it. Greg Savitt on The Land and the Book. Dr. Michael Vlock is professor of theology at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He is the author of several books, including He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. He's appeared on several national radio and television broadcasts, including the History Channel. We're glad to have him with us today on The Land and the Book. Welcome, Michael. Hello, John. It's great to be with you today. Well, the relationship between Israel and the Church continues to be a controversial topic led by this question. Does the Church replace, supersede, or somehow fulfill the nation of Israel and God's plan, or will Israel be saved and restored with a unique identity and role? Let's dive right in. Michael, what do you say to that question? Well, I would say the Church definitely does not replace Israel and God's plans. The the Church has a very important role to play, but national corporate Israel, sometimes we refer to as ethnic, national, territorial Israel, has always had significance in the plan of God. You know, if you read the Old Testament, corporate Israel is viewed as significant in this age that we currently have. Israel as a whole is an unbelief, but there is a remnant of believing Israel. And then there's a whole host of Old Testament and New Testament prophetic sections that tell us that Israel as a corporate national entity still has significance in God's purposes. So therefore, the view that the church replaces or fulfills or supersedes national Israel as God's people is not true. Well, let's not assume that everybody knows what we're talking about when we use this term replacement theology. Give us a a very simple definition, Mike. Yeah, replacement theology would be the view that the New Testament church in Jesus has taken over the identity and role of Israel that used to exist for Israel in the Old Testament, and thus becomes the people of God to the exclusion of national Israel. So sometimes that's what we call it replacement theology or supersessionism, is allegedly the church has taken over national Israel's role as the people of God to such an extent that the corporate entity of national entity of Israel is no longer theologically significant. There are some who believe, you know, there may be a lot of Jews who will be saved in the last days, but they don't have any kind of role for Israel as a nation. Some listeners might be saying, look, I'm a bit fuzzy on all this, but why get so spun up about replacement theology? I mean, different people have believed different things for millennia. Why is this such a critical issue? 
Well, it's a critical issue, first of all, because it's important to getting the Bible storyline right. Like every Christian, in addition to being saved and living a godly Christian life, should want to understand what, what should want to know what the Word of God says. And therefore, Israel is a very important player in the storyline of Scripture. God is using Israel to bless the nations and to bless the world, and there's you know various stages of that. So if we don't get the role of Israel right, we're not really getting the story of the Bible right. Now, Jesus is the most important figure in all of Scripture, but there's other things like the earth and nations and Israel and those things that are significant. So simply put, if, if you're missing out the significance of Israel, you're missing out on a significant part of the Bible storyline. And I would also say it's been true historically, maybe not so much on an individual level, but whenever the church has gotten Israel wrong or they've adopted replacement theology or something like that, oftentimes it has gone hand in hand with very negative views of the Jewish people. So mm -hmm. historically, the more the church has adopted a replacement view, the more it has tended to cooperate with negative actions towards the Jewish people. So it is significant. Well, let me ask then, that being the case, why does there not seem to be any more caution lights blinking for those who espouse replacement theology? Why do they not say, well, you know, in history, that is true. It has led to sometimes disastrous consequences. Why aren't those warning mm -hmm. lights blinking in such a way that would curb some of this rush toward replacement theology? Yeah, it just seems to be the trend in church history. Whenever the church is predominantly made of Gentiles, that there oftentimes is a desire to downplay the significance of Israel. It's almost like we have to really fight that tendency. You know, Paul had to fight that in Romans, where he says, God has not rejected his people, has he? So, so even back then, there was the tendency, as the church is becoming more Gentile, to want to say that God was done with Israel. He'll say in Romans eleven eighteen, do not be arrogant towards the branches. And so when you just look throughout history, you know, if we're not trying hard to understand the Scripture and the role of Israel and God's plans, the tendency oftentimes is to, is to downplay the significance of Israel. And I think we're seeing that today. I, I think in the 20th century, there was a lot of great study and understanding of the significance of Israel. But I'd say in the last 20 years, that has, that has started to wane. And unfortunately, we're starting to see more negative views towards uh, Israel, I think, in the church today. Has the Church Replaced Israel? It's a book that's written by Michael Vlock, our guest today on The Land and the Book. So let me ask you, Mike, who or what is fueling the replacement theology movement across America? Historically, replacement theology has been around. So it's, so it's almost more perhaps of a resurgence that we're seeing today. Okay. And, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of positive developments with interest in Reformed theology and a lot of the emphasis on God's sovereignty, but oftentimes with that comes more negative views towards Israel and perhaps more of a tendency towards, towards uh, replacement theology. And I, you know, I think, you know, not to throw a too fancy of a term in here, but there, there's been a theological movement, you know, known as dispensationalism, which has been very pro when it comes to understanding the significance of Israel's and God's plans. And we live in a day where those who hold that view are viewed much more negatively. It's harder to get published. It's harder to get the word out when it comes to God's plans for Israel. And so I think there have been some trends in that direction the last 20 years that have made understanding the significance of Israel. It's harder to get the word out on that issue. It seems to me that at the same time that we're also witnessing a pulling away of support for Israel, there's an emerging consensus that despite evidence to the contrary, Israel is somehow the bully, the, uh, the Goliath of the Middle East, rather than the, the guy being picked on. 
As best you can guess, do you think those who propagate replacement theology are aware of this linkage? Yeah, I think, and I would say probably those who are promoting that would, would view that as being the case. So again, now that, that's a general statement, and any individual, there's going to be you know, some perhaps differences of opinion. But on the whole, I think those that are tending more towards a replacement position are, are tending to view Israel as the aggressor. I think those two go hand in hand. We're talking with Michael Vlock, who has written, Has the Church Replaced Israel Today on the Land and the Book? Anti-Semitism leads to frightening things. Where is the sense of fear on the part of replacement theology folks? Or are they okay with anti-Semitism? Well, I don't think they would view themselves as being anti-Semitic. And so this is where I think we, we have to be a little bit careful, because I think historically the church as a whole, oftentimes when it has adopted replacement theology, has tended towards anti-Semitism. But I think when it comes down to individual theologians, I think a lot of them believe that the Scripture is teaching that the church is, is the new Israel. And so I think you're going to find a variety of, of, of opinions on that. But if you're talking to your average person who would hold to replacement theology, they would want to make clear, you know, we're not anti-Jewish, we're not anti-Semitic, we just believe the church has replaced Israel. Now, on the other side of that, as I said, when the church as a whole adopts that particular approach, it oftentimes leads towards uh, negative attitudes and consequences towards the Jewish people. In the book, you write, there are compelling scriptural reasons in both Testaments to believe in a future salvation and restoration of the nation of Israel. So let me ask you, Mike, can you take us to your favorite Old Testament passage that speaks to the future restoration of Israel? Yeah, I would say that's Deuteronomy chapter 30. And and if you were to read Deuteronomy 28 to 30 as a whole, but particularly chapter 30, God lays out before, you know, at the end of Moses' life, he lays out a big picture scenario where he tells the people of Israel, no, you're going to go into the land, the, the land of promise. And when you get there, there's going to be a time where you obey me, but then there's also going to be disobedience and there's going to be scatterings to the nations. But he promises that there's going to come a day when Israel is going to be permanently saved. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to restore them to the land. Uh, Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 45 would also be up there as well where God says, you know, when Israel as an entity truly repents, that he will restore them to the land and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So there's lots of text, but if you're asking me for one, Deuteronomy 30 is very important because it gives a big picture prediction of Israel's conquest of the land, dispersion because of disobedience, but ultimate permanent restoration with a new heart and blessings in the land of promise. All right, for the sake of balance, take us to a couple of favorite New Testament passages that speak to the future restoration of Israel? Oh, I would, I would go to Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, where the angel Gabriel tells Mary, that's your son Jesus, he's going to sit on the throne of his father David, and he's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever, which is a reference to Israel. I think in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus tells his apostles that those of you who have followed me when he comes again and sits on his throne, Jesus' throne, he says, you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's also reaffirmed in the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22, around verse 30, Jesus tells them the same thing, that there is a kingdom coming and his followers are going to uh, be involved with judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I would also go to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where the apostles say, Lord, on the day of ascension, you know, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus accepts the premise of the question and says, well, it's not for you to know the times are epics, 
but he seems to be affirming that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Of course, Romans 11, uh, we could spend, a, we don't have the time now, but we could spend a whole half hour talking about Romans 11, but Romans 11:26 says all Israel will be saved, and then it's connected with a prophetic passage from Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, where it talks about Israel's entrance, you know, into covenant blessings. Uh, Romans 11:12 says that when Israel's fullness occurs, that there's going to be even greater blessings for the world. So those are just a sample of some verses which are reaffirming and teaching the significance of national Israel in God's plans. So let me ask, how can we graciously but firmly refute replacement theology in conversations, either online or in person? Well, I would say the best way to confront errors to have the truth. So the thing is, there's many passages in both the Old and the New Testament which are teaching the significance of Israel in God's plans. So the verses that we've talked about, and there's also many more. So the best way to combat error is with truth. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, there are books that are out there that lay out some of the, uh, the things that replacement theologians are saying, and so perhaps to understand some of the key verses that they would use, and then the answers to those, that would be significant. But I, I think for your, you know, for your average person who's, you know, just trying to understand the issues, the, the key thing is uh, looking at some of those key passages that we've talked about and just uh, present them. There's power in the Word of God being proclaimed. And just remember that the significance of Israel is an explicit doctrine in Scripture, and there's multiple passages that teach it. Has the Church Replaced Israel? That's the book by Michael Vlock, and there's a link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. encourage you to check it out. Mike, thank you so much for explaining this in plain English. Really appreciate your time. Well, well, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. And I hope you'll stick around because we're getting to questions next. Maybe one of them is yours here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Giger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? A lot of people want to know. Why is it important to know, and what does it mean for you? Well, you know, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that actually addresses that very issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it'll surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving the free ebook is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. And let's get right to our list of questions. You say, what questions? Questions that people like you uh, have come to as they read through Scripture, or maybe they read the headlines and they wonder about prophecy and issues in the Middle East. They're all welcome, you know when you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We'll get started with David's. He says, I'm so thankful for the Land of the Book podcast. I was reading in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, about Solomon offering burnt sacrifices and burning incense on the high places. And I can see in the context that Solomon was worshiping God with a sincere heart. Why couldn't he have sacrificed in the tabernacle and not on the high places? Yeah, and the events there in 1 Kings 3 take place during a unique time in Israel's history. 
you know, God had commanded Israel only to offer sacrifices at the places where he chose. That's actually mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now, originally that was at the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh, and later it was in the temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem. But 1 Kings 3 is in a period of time that neither of those was available. You know, after the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant back in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, it appears they also went to Shiloh and destroyed the town. Uh, but before that happened, the priests and workers took some of the items of furniture and they scattered them in various locations. We know from uh, David's fleeing from Saul that in 1 Samuel 21, the table of showbread ended up at Nob, just north of Jerusalem. That's where David was given the bread of the presence. Uh, we know the ark returned from the Philistines and ended up in a town called Kiriath Yaarim before David finally brought it up to Jerusalem, where it was housed in a temporary tent. Uh, we know the actual tabernacle constructed by Moses, as well as the bronze altar from the tabernacle, were taken to Gibeon. So when Solomon went to the high place at Gibeon to offer a sacrifice, he likely went there to offer the sacrifice on that actual altar built by Moses. Uh, he had a sincere heart, but he also offered a sacrifice at a time when there was no set place where God sanctioned tabernacle or temple worship, uh, where there was nothing like that standing. So he went to the one altar God had designated for the offering of sacrifices. And in that sense, I think he did his best to follow what God laid out in the law. Mary says, a question came up this morning as I was reading John chapter 10, verse 40. It says, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. So how did people in those days cross from one side of the Jordan to the other? Was there a bridge? Did they take boats? What do you think, Charlie? Well, you know, I think there are two possible ways someone could cross the Jordan River around Jericho. It was possible to cross on foot during those times of the year uh, when water levels would have been lower, you know, like from June through October. That's the dry season. But it's also possible that there was some kind of a ferry service that would allow people and goods uh, to cross across on a raft or on a boat. Now, I say that because a boat and a, a crossing pole is shown by Jericho on the Metaba map. Now, people go, what's that? Well, the Metaba map is a mosaic that was put together in a church in Jordan about four centuries after the time of Jesus. But it at least suggests the possibility that a similar system could have been in place during the first century. Now, no such service was there when Israel crossed in Jordan at the time of Joshua, obviously, and they crossed during the flood stage. But at other times of the year, people could either walk across, ford themselves across, or perhaps there was that ferry service, some boat that could take people back and forth. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, always intrigued with your questions, and they're welcome again at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Roger says, I really enjoy listening to the program, but I cannot find any links to the news stories that you mentioned when you're talking about amazing Israel, often describing companies and new developments. Where can I find these links typically? Well, you know, I actually, I search for a, a large number of sites to find information, and I can't list all of the sites on air, but here's what I'd suggest. Listen carefully to the name of the place. I do try and uh, name it and spell it if it's somewhat hard, and then just Google that name. Like uh, back in July, I mentioned a company called Solvit, and I spelled out their name. Well, if you Google the name, that you could find the, the information about the company. But also, check out some of Israel's websites. Yeah, Israel 21C, that is 21C, has a lot of information on new, new things taking place in Israel. Also, the Times of Israel, the Jerusalem Post, Ynet News, Haaretz, and Aretz Sheva. Now, they'll have articles on recent developments, and I go to those regularly to uh, find initial reports. Uh, so all that to say, the best way to find it is try and jot down the company name and do an online search. But if all that fails, 
send us an email and, and I'll try and send that information to you. Thanks, Charlie. Rose wants to know about Isaiah 65, verse 8. Essentially, it says, this is what the Lord says, when juice is discovered in a cluster of grapes, someone says, don't destroy it for it contains juice. So I will do for the sake of my servants. I will not destroy everyone. She says, I've looked at the surrounding verses, but I still don't see my way through the confusion. Can you please explain what this is about? Yeah, Isaiah 65 is a fascinating chapter because it alternates between God's threatened judgment on those who continue to spurn him and uh, deliverance and blessing that he'll pour out on those who turn to him. And I see the ultimate fulfillment of the chapter in the still future tribulation and millennial kingdom. But now in verses one to seven, God says he was revealing himself to a nation, that is Israel, who refused to acknowledge him and who continue in sin. In verses six and seven, he finally announces judgment on them. But lest someone think God's finally given up on Israel, he then turns around in verse 8 and says, a remnant still remains. Uh, The illustration he gives there from a cluster of grapes is comparing the wicked to a bunch of grapes that appear to be shriveled and dried. However, within that cluster, some juice remains. That is, within the wicked nation, there's still a righteous remnant who will be spared. And then beginning in verse 9, God describes the blessing he'll pour out on that righteous remnant. Well, Carol Lee takes us to the story of Job, where God commanded Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, to sacrifice burnt offerings to God, and Job prayed for each of them. But why didn't God have Elihu do the same? You know, John, I jump up and down on that kind of a question, because that's the kind of observation we need to be making as we read the Bible, and it's a very perceptive observation. You know, some dismiss Elihu as a minor character in the book of Job. I believe he plays a crucial role. Job and the three friends got locked into an endless cycle of debate. The friends believed Job was suffering because of sin, and Job believed he was innocent, and therefore God must have made a mistake. Elihu comes along at the end and says, in effect, that both sides miss the point. He then points out the greatness and grandeur of a God whose purpose in life extends beyond our understanding. Elihu's the perfect transition to the Lord himself, who then comes in to question Job. God asks a series of questions to help Job realize how little he understands about how life really works. In the end, God has Job offer sacrifices for the three friends to show that Job had spoken more correctly about God than they had. But Job isn't required to offer a sacrifice for Elihu because Elihu hadn't spoken incorrectly about God. He might not have been as old or wise or spiritually mature as Job, But he got it when it came to understanding that Job and the three friends had tried to place God in a box. Elihu didn't need to offer the sacrifice because he hadn't fallen into the same trap as the three friends had. Here's one from Gene. At the end of the tribulation, the earth will be very damaged. Will God clean up the earth before the millennium? Yeah, you know, the earth is definitely going to be in terrible shape following the tribulation. But uh, here's a few passages that I, I think might help. In Isaiah 65, verses 18 to 25, Isaiah describes God's creation of a new heaven and new earth. And while that could be a reference to the ultimate new heaven and new earth pictured in the book of Revelation, Isaiah goes on in that passage then to describe a restored Jerusalem with universal peace, even among the animal kingdom, with people living long lives and prosperous lives. A lot of those details relate to the millennial kingdom. So it it suggests God's going to remove the curse from the earth during that time. In Isaiah 11, God also described the time with universal peace even among the animals. Now, another passage that offers some insight is Amos chapter 9, right at the end of the book of Amos. There, the prophet describes a future period of time when the plowman will overtake the reaper. That is, it's going to be a time of such bounty that people will be harvesting their grain 
when time comes to plant the next season's crop. You know, it's taken that long to harvest everything because it's been so abundant. He also says the ruined cities will be rebuilt, suggesting that some of the restoration work is done by the people who remain and who go into the kingdom. And the final passage is Ezekiel 47, uh, verses 7 to 12. In that passage, Ezekiel's shown a river of living or running water that goes down into the Jordan Valley, into the Dead Sea, and the lifeless body of water begins to teem with fish. Uh, now, as I put all those pieces of information together, it looks to me like God's going to do his part to renew and restore the earth back to a place of fertility and blessing. But at least at the beginning of the millennium, people are also going to be tasked with the rebuilding and the restoring of the cities and towns. Well, as you listen to this segment here on The Land of the Book, maybe it has sparked uh, some curiosity about an issue that's come to your mind as you read Scripture. Why not jot down that question in an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Stick around, there's more to come. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional up next on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. So glad you're with us here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. I'm pumped about what's coming next. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. Very few people on the planet have the ability to open their Bibles, find a passage, connect it with the place, and take us there like Charlie Dyer does. Well, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because we want to squeeze in this testimony from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and has this to share with you and me. I have been blessed to be on my second tour with Charlie Dyer. And I think um, the experience at En Gedi was very meaningful to me. How David found Saul indisposed and had the opportunity to take his life. And yet he recognized and acknowledged that Saul was God's anointed one for a purpose. And he acted righteously and did not slay him when he had the opportunity. And it was a great lesson because Charlie shared how we respond to treatment, ill treatment from others, is a key on our walk with Christ. And that was very meaningful to me. Well, Charlie, you're about to take us to a memorable place that uh, you find quite interesting. We're heading to a place, John, that everybody listening has never heard of it. And they will never forget it once they, they do. Kirbet Midras is amazing, and most tourists don't even know it exists. So aren't you glad, everybody, that I brought you here today? According to the 5th century Metabah map, this is the location of the grave of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Hmm. The map shows a church at the location, and they discovered the remains of that church just on the other side of this hill we're standing on. But unfortunately, we're going to be heading in the opposite direction. So how did you like the remains of the tomb we just visited? It was once even more spectacular until some vandals tore it apart. I'm glad it was at least partially restored because it's a great illustration of the kind of tomb Joseph of Arimathea would have had. But now it's time for a hike to another interesting site, and I wonder if you could do me a favor. My back's bothering me just a little, so would you carry my knapsack in addition to your own? You know, it's not too heavy. I only have my phone and my computer and my charger, my camera, an extra lens, a few extra batteries and, and my iPad and, oh, and an extra bottle of water and my notebook and my Bible. Uh, there are probably a few other things in there. It doesn't weigh more than 10 or, or 20 or so pounds. So if you could just carry it till we get to the next stop, I'd really appreciate it. And here we are at our next stop. That wasn't so bad, was it? Okay, so maybe it did take 
20 or 25 minutes and it was a little bit uphill and the ground was just a little rocky, but all in all, I feel fine. You, however, you're looking a little tired. Tell you what, grab your water bottle, take a drink while I tell you about this monument in front of us. This, my friend, is a Roman mile marker. The Romans were master builders and remains of some of the roads they constructed in Israel can still be seen today. This particular marker was part of a road heading north through a natural chalk pass in the low foothills of Judah. Believe it or not, this is the same ancient place Joshua chased the Canaanites when he rescued the people of Gibeon. But while the chalk pass was a natural route for travel, it was the Romans who built up the roadbed and put in the mile markers. The Latin word for mile is milia, and it's also the word for thousand. Amelia, or Roman mile, was a thousand paces. But in the Roman military, a pace or stride was two steps, left, right, halt. A Roman mile, with its 1,000 two-step paces, was 4,850 feet, just over 400 feet shy of our modern mile today. Now, that may not be too helpful if you can't visualize distances. Thankfully, I just happened to have a pedometer in my pocket, the distance we just traveled from that tomb at Kirbet Midras to this marker is almost exactly a Roman mile, and it took us just over 20 minutes at a steady pace. Just think, you now have special insight into Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. While you're catching your breath, let me explain what Jesus meant when he said that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shared the common understanding of God's law as taught by the religious leaders of his day. And then he showed what God really intended when he gave his standards of righteousness. In reality, no one except Jesus could ever measure up. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But he told the people, you need to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't grade on a curve. The standard for getting into heaven was absolute perfection, and only Jesus measured up. None of us is good enough to get into heaven on our own, and that's why God sent his Son here to earth. Jesus led a perfect life, showing he alone was qualified to get there on his own. But then he willingly went to the cross and died in our place, taking on himself all the punishment that really belongs to us. We can get to heaven because he paid the price for our sin. But back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was still showing the people of his day how absolutely perfect God expected his followers to be. They were focused on God's absolute justice, an eye for an eye, not realizing how much they really needed God's mercy. So Jesus focused on the love and mercy of God, the hesed of God, that brought grace and forgiveness to the undeserving. And he did so by giving a series of illustrations, one of which involved a Roman mile marker, just like the one in front of us. In Jesus' day, the land was ruled by the Romans, and the Romans practiced a form of forced labor. A military officer could conscript a civilian into service as a porter, forcing that person to carry some of his baggage but he could only force the person to do so for a mile, lest the individual be taken too far away from his home, his family, his business. The fact that Jesus used the Greek transliteration of the Latin word for mile 
suggests he was deliberately painting a scene that was very distasteful for his Jewish audience. The hated Roman occupiers could grab them at any time and force them to work, essentially as a slave, though only for a specific distance. The distance you just carried my knapsack. Now, note what Jesus says. If someone imposes on you and presses you into service, which is the technical meaning of the word used by Jesus, how should you respond? Some might choose to refuse, preferring the consequences of their disobedience. Others might submit but grumble. Others might submit but choose to carry a load of resentment and anger in addition to the physical burden. But Jesus says that someone who truly understands God's concept of grace, mercy, and forgiveness will respond in a way that will revolutionize human relationships. Well, we reached the end of the first mile. I'm happy to carry this load for another mile if it'll help. Where I grew up, the normal response to what Jesus just said would be a rolling of the eyes followed by an, are you nuts? The person just imposed on me, totally disrupting my day. And now you want me to willingly go out of my way to help him. Why in the world would I do that? And the answer is found in Jesus' words and deeds. We're to extend grace to others because it's a small reflection of the massive amount of grace God has already extended to us. We don't deserve his forgiveness or his mercy or his love or his riches. He did all that for us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And now Jesus is asking us to demonstrate the same grace and mercy to those who come into our lives, including those who are selfish, self-centered, and demanding. So take another look at this mile marker. And then the next time you encounter one of life's self-centered, demanding people, knock their socks off by demonstrating what Jesus really meant when he told you to go the extra mile. You know, I'm wondering, Charlie, as people listen to this conversation, if for them today's broadcast is something of a mile marker. Maybe you're listening and you heard Charlie talking about what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. And and there's something in this dialogue that resonates with you. I invite you to get your questions answered if you have questions. Talk to a volunteer right now at 888-NEED-HIM. You can be made right with God. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can know that Jesus is the leader of your life and that you are, are reserved a slot in heaven. 888, and then the numbers that spell out, need him. A friendly volunteer will pick up the phone and be glad to talk with you. Well, our time is up. We want to say thanks to Dan Anderson, our co-producer, for assembling today's broadcast and keeping us all on track, to Charlie Dyer for his great insights and his willingness to share those with us, and also thanks to the management at this station for carving out airtime. Sure appreciate being a part of the lineup here, and thanks to you for listening as well. Do come back next week for another fresh installment of Perspectives on the Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.